Hi, everyone. We have a special announcement today. We will be hosting a watch party on Tuesday, August 3rd. And we are very excited about the episode we like to watch all together. Are you ready? We'll be watching Tall Tales. I'm actually so excited about this. So we're going to have more details for you over the next week or so. So make sure to follow us on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram to stay updated with the details. And we really hope to see you there. Yes, please come join us. See you soon. Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 2, Episode 7, The Usual Suspects. Let's get this show on the road. So Drew, before we get started today, I sort of wanted to give a big shout out to everybody who has joined us from TikTok lately. As you know, we've started hosting TikToks, you know, despite both of us being millennials. (laughs) Don't out us like that. Honestly, it's been really wonderful. Like most people have been really great to to interact with on this platform. Really warm reception to a lot of the stuff that we have to say, surprisingly. (laughs) And so welcome on board. I know that you mainly run it. I try to dip in when I can and at least jump into the comments and speak when I can. And I've shared the occasional bit and I know you use some of my audio for bits, but like it's been a really nice environment. Thank you. And yeah, like you said, Mary, to all of our Listeners who came to us through TikTok, hey, welcome. Welcome aboard this journey. (laughs) We're in here for a few years still, so come and keep us company. As you may have heard us say in previous episodes, uh, but we felt like we just wanted to reiterate, if you have any thoughts or uh, comments or concerns about any of our episodes, you can feel free to reach out to us either through TikTok or you can send us an email or send us a voicemail, whatever you prefer. We're always around. And always open to it. And I guess it's time we start this episode off the way we always do, with me trying to explain it in under a minute and a half. Three, two, one, go. The brothers get arrested. They are being held because, I mean, Dean's got a rap sheet pretty long with all the stuff he's done. He's also, they think he's a murderer because of skin. And here they think he's a murderer again, but they don't have anything to hold him on. And it turns out it may actually be a ghost. And then we find out when Sam breaks out of you know custody that it's, it is a ghost, but it's actually a ghost trying to stop a killer. And the ghost is looking to rest. And that's, kind of the entire episode really is is that it <laughs> yeah that's that's really it i mean <laughs> let's jump into the long game right away and then we can talk about the actual episode a bit more how about that of course yes what do we got one word consequences <laughs> we simultaneously learn that there are consequences for their actions and that if you destroy a ghost and save someone's life, those consequences are null and void. Well, I feel like that's a whole other topic, <laughs> even perhaps for critical time. I know that you you had wondered in Skin, like, are we going to ever hear about this again? And yes, we do hear about it. This is the first instance. And through this season, we are going to see a couple more times where the boys have to face those consequences of their actions. I'm glad we do because it does help build the world a bit. And I think that's one thing this episode does do for us. The one thing I can give it credit for right off the bat. It helps kind of flesh out 
the world around the brothers from Mm -hmm. the way they handle cases to the way that they deal with lying to the public to the way they communicate and that there are consequences for their actions, even if they find a way out of them there the consequences exist that's really something to remember because like we said we're both a little ambivalent about it because it's just so plot driven it doesn't really give us much in terms of like the brother's story at the the end of the day it's very much a filler episode but it at least does some world building exactly shall we move into story time let's Rewatching this episode, I was really kind of shocked by Sam's ability to kind of like just emotionally match his environment. I don't know if that's something that you mentioned, you, that you saw. When he's being interrogated, he's like snarky, he's combative, oh, yeah. right? Like he lies without even flinching. He's just being very like high energy Sam. And when he's with Dean, he's like the Sam that we're a bit more used to. Like he's smart and also a little whiny. And then when he's posing as an insurance person with Karen Giles, he's attentive, he's kind. You know, he tells Dean when he's being a little too pushy. It sort of feels like Sam can sense the emotion level in the room and kind of like meet it immediately. It goes to show that Sam is really good at lying. As much as we don't really look at it a lot, I mean, when he's playing a role, he's able to be empathetic, but still play the character. And I don't want to say manipulate, but it's kind of the only term. He's able to have those conversations while posing as an insurance salesman, as posing as a doctor, posing as a cop or a detective and get the information he needs without ever breaking character, which Dean tends to do a bit more because he's a little bit like gung ho for the answer. We kind of see this like shift in Sam's mood while he's being interrogated. At first, it's like, what's going on? I'm worried. Give me info. And then as soon as things kind of all come together and he's like, ah, okay, it's plan X, Y, Z. Dean's there. I'm here. I know the plan. I just have to lie my way through it now. He snaps into comfort. That's really interesting. I'd never really thought about it as like Sam being good at lying. (laughs) I mean, you could all say it's good at acting, I think is more how it should be perceived as much as he is just lying to cops. There's a level of acting involved in how your demeanor is. Like Lying is one thing, acting is another. And I think they kind of go hand in hand here. You know what? Yeah, so I'll take that. I'll also take the lying. I don't I don't really take offense to that. That's not really my problem. It's, it's more that, so the way that I saw it is more like, because we talk a lot about Dean being able to like compartmentalize and like, just suppressing his emotions. But I I feel like this gives us an insight into how Sam does that. The way that I see it, Sam grew up with an emotionally unstable dad, as we know. So he had to know like when to be quiet and when he could be himself. You know how, I don't know. I don't know if this is going to be relatable to anybody, but like some people are able to recognize if like their parents are in a bad mood just by their footsteps. And like that is incredibly relatable to me. Like I was immediately able to tell like when my mom was in a bad mood just by the way that like she got down the stairs in the morning. And I feel like Sam had to develop that in order to to survive, you know, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. his childhood. Right. So like he's constantly compartmentalizing and suppressing his own emotions in order to navigate the world around him. Yeah, you know, you're right. Like, I I don't think the footsteps per se would be my hint, but I can definitely tell when a parent of mine walked into a room or even just like approached me, the body language, the 
just the little, those tiny details you can't even explain. You could tell if they were approaching you and they were in a good mood or a bad mood pretty easily just because you know them so much. So being able to pick up on that to a greater scale that you could do it with strangers, definitely a useful skill in this line of work for them. And it would make sense that he became very adept to it. For Sam, in this case, it's a question. Well, in this case, it's, it's a question of actual survival. But I think with his dad, it was a question of emotional survival. I feel like we're learning a lot about Sam this episode. Actually, so my next point has like something to do a little bit with both brothers. There's so many pop culture references in this episode, right? Like there's stuff about like The X-Files, The Shining, The Great Escape, Matlock, and like a bunch of other ones. Each episode so far has always had like a couple or a few pop culture references. So it wasn't really surprising, but I really find that this one had a lot of them. And for me, it sort of goes back to the fact that these boys were raised by TV, right? Like John would take them from motel to motel across the country. He'd leave them there for God knows how long. And they sort of had access to unlimited TV. And so obviously some of the programming would have been for their age and some of it would have definitely not been. And and we're sort of seeing that now. And it's also partly how they communicate. That, to me, is a great example of this. I feel like referencing and quoting TV shows, characters, cartoons, movies is a very easy way to connect to other people because it gives you a common ground to bounce off of. This is a language they have built between themselves to the point where they can make a reference to a film and divulge an entire plan to each other without having to communicate beyond just a few key words. Okay, let me just spell this out because this is really interesting what you just mentioned. When Dean asks the lawyer to give Sam like the note, right, that he wrote for him. And by the way, both of them called him Matlock, which I thought was absolutely hilarious. Our listeners who wouldn't know who Matlock is, it's a reference to a a TV show from the 80s, I believe, about a lawyer. The irony, if I can point out, is I know the reference only because the Simpsons make reference to it. You know a reference because of another their reference. I feel like that's very meta. Uh, So when Dean actually has that lawyer give Sam the note, he addresses it to Hiltz and signs it McQueen. And so he's referencing the great escape. And what does Sam do next? Yep. He escapes. (laughs) So basically like that was the whole goal to, to tell Sam like, Hey, get out of here. I will create a diversion. You just go, you figure this out. And it's amazing that they're able to put that together with such little context and This is part of the world building I was discussing is clearly between the fact that their stories line up perfectly, according to the cops, and this plan was able to be hatched with just a note. They've clearly built over the years, whether it be just through the two of them or John was involved in some of these, they have built this library of plans when we encounter, like, I don't think they sat down before every case to discuss, okay, if we get caught by the cops this time, here's our story. But they have a rule book to go by, this mental rule book of how do we handle if cops approach us so we have the same story. Can I tell you what this reminded me of, what you just said? Ooh, what? In Ragnarok, when when Thor and Loki are in the elevator... <laughs> And Loki goes, I'm not doing get help. And the next scene is like, get help, get help. <laughs> but that's just and it. I feel this like, is, yes, this exactly. Is, but I feel like this is so representative of them. And it's, and especially because it's Thor and Loki and Dean and Sam. And you're just like, this, this fits. This actually fits them. It's the language you build with someone so close to you. Like 
even my own brothers, I know I can just text them like one or two words and get, describe exactly what we're referencing. And anyone else looking at our conversation would be like, I think one of you just had a stroke. You might want to go see a doctor. Those aren't words. But to us, we know exactly what we're joking about. And I mean, that's inside jokes with anybody, but on a level where you build your life around it as a, essentially their, their job, essentially, it just goes a level further. And I feel like, again, there's something really meta about this because Supernatural does that a lot of the time. Like they reference other media very judiciously. Yes, I use the word judicious. Um, <laughs> But they really do. And every time that they do, there's always a message behind it. And so it is, that's why it's always so interesting to go and look at the pop culture references in the episodes, because sometimes you find gems where you're like, oh, I'm pretty sure that this means that. And then you go look it up and you go, oh, wow, that is not at all what I thought Dean was saying. <laughs> and it gives a whole new meaning to whatever he was saying. So definitely something to keep in mind for, for future seasons. For sure. So I talked very briefly about a parallel between Thor and Loki, but if uh, between Thor and Loki and Sam and Dean, but like there's an actual parallel in the episode that's happening between the cops and the brothers. So in season one, Sam and Dean are mostly mirrored by characters who like cope differently or who are different in like the way that they behave in the world. So like in their archetypes. And I think that one of the most striking examples was in Asylum, where they had Kat and Gavin, if you remember Kat and Gavin. Oh, I remember Gavin. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know you remember Gavin. That's why I thought I would bring it up. But this season, I don't know if you've picked up on that, but like it seems like they're being mirrored by characters who are betraying each other's trust. Like we saw it with Andy and Ansem, and now we're seeing it with Diana and Peter. Even Ellen and Joe. Even Ellen and Joe. So in the case of Andy and Ansem and uh, Diana and Peter the betrayed party ends up killing the betrayer. What do we think about that? Oh, that's a very worrisome branch to to present to me. <laughs> I don't like that because we also previously this season, I believe, spoke about how Sam believes Dean is a little bit too trigger happy in some scenarios and would not second guess himself. Hmm. And what do we know about Sam? Sam believes he is evil and to be put down because he's quote unquote a chosen one of the yellow white demon and meant for bigger and more evil things. So he probably should be taken out. So he believes Dean should kill him in some small way. And we, there's also like a deathbed confession of their father, right? That we don't know anything about yet because Dean hasn't been able to tell Sam. <laughs> is either foreshadowing or you're teasing me. Either way, I'm worried. Well, I mean, without giving away any spoilers, the brothers are still around for another like 13 seasons. So doesn't mean one of them doesn't die. We've learned very clearly that death is not the end of a character in this show. So they could each die a few times between now and the end of season 15. And I would not be shocked. Oh, I don't like that I might be predicting things or you're playing with me. Either way, it leads me to worry. Well, I'm sorry about that. Is there anything that you wanted to bring up with story time? I really like, again, this like playing with our expectations. Everything kind of leads to the idea of like, oh, there's a vengeful spirit and we have to stop it. And then that slow realization of like, oh, it's leading us to itself. 
and that maybe it's not a vengeful spirit. It's essentially taking, I feel like it's not the first time we're doing this, but it's one of the first times it's not a main character. It's really just a secondary monster of the week that is presented to us as not actually the monster. And in this case, it's warning people versus killing people. And I just think I like that subversion, that kind of that change of pace. I don't think it really does much to the story in this episode, more than just being an interesting story beat. But I do like it as part of the, again, I've said before, world building. It's nice to see that there are spirits who are stuck behind because they have unfinished business. That is good business. So I just, I kind of like that little bit of flavor that we've received. No, for sure. I definitely get that. With that very short story time segment, I think it's time to jump into critical time. Who are our writer and director? So this episode was written by Catherine Humphreys, who also wrote uh, Dead Man's Blood with John Sheeban, and it was directed by Mike Roll. Dead Man's Blood, good episode. I don't really see any common threads in the writing, per se, in these two episodes. Like, nothing really jumps out as a, like, oh, that makes sense. It just feels like, as I've said, the story wasn't much to go on, but the writing really was good, both from all the pop culture references that actually made sense to just some well-written character and some well-written dialogue. Mike Roll, anything from them? So Mike Roll has actually directed a lot of episodes throughout the seasons, but this is his very first one. We'll have time to really look at, at his style. And I'm actually looking at the list and some of them are some of my favorite episodes in these seasons. So it, I'm very excited to actually try to find and see if there are any common threads between all of these. Interesting. And as I said, I, I, despite admitting this episode didn't do much, it was generally a very fun episode. I did like the interaction between the different, uh, between the, uh, the female cop character and the spirit and them kind of opening up to Dean as the, like, I don't want to admit, I think you're right, but like hypothetically let's start talking and the choices she makes to go, like, I'm starting to trust you two to ultimately letting them go, I think was just a really well-developed character in such a short period of time. From a writing and directing standpoint, I will say I'm excited to see what they do next. And you touched upon something that I would like to, that is something, usually something that I would definitely be all over in critical time, and that is police representation in this episode. Frankly, this week, I just did not have the spoons to, like, dive into it that deeply but there's just something that I enjoyed about the police representation there that we were actually showed a cop with institutional power who abuses this power and so I thought that that was an interesting take for Supernatural to have um, because the in previous episodes anything that's closely related to that that we had seen was in the benders I think at the time it would have been a lot more gray even though again like as I've I think that I've made pretty clear I don't see that as gray at all but what we're seeing here is definitely there are no shades of gray like that cop is clearly like a corrupt cop like it's very easy to spot and that in itself is sort of also to me kind of a downfall where Again, and this is something that I think Supernatural does again, because we saw we saw them do that in Something Wicked, where the problem or like the bad thing in an institution, the bad person is one person without really asking any questions about the actual institution under which 
this person operates because this person was allowed to operate and to do all of those horrible things because he had the police force behind him. So again, like I'm not going to dive too much into that today, but just some very conflicting thoughts about the way that they chose to represent police in this episode. This is at least a step in a direction. I don't want to say a good direction or a bad direction, but I think it's just it's a stance that we're building in the supernatural universe that cops are not implicitly good guys. There are going to be corrupt cops. This is a system like in the real world that is flawed. They're at least acknowledging it. Are they tackling it? Are they going deep into it? No, like this is not... I don't think a stance they are trying to make, especially given the time it was produced in. Cops were very much still still seen in a very positive light to the average TV watcher, unfortunately. The average white TV watcher. Yeah, sorry, the average white TV watcher. But I think this at least sets the precedence that in the supernatural world, you can't just blanket say, oh, well, in this universe, the cops are just good. It makes sense also to kind of do that because they can't trust cops with their with their knowledge right or they can't trust trust every cop with their knowledge and so that's also something very interesting to kind of keep in mind uh the last and critical time i want to really touch on is just sort of some of the references they made like i think there were just so many fun references it's hard to not at least acknowledge a few of them so obviously we have as we mentioned in story time the references to matlock just the kind of sarcastically referring to this bumbling lawyer as you know as Matlock, a very proficient detective and lawyer, the, the the Mulder and Scully moment too, kind of like which one of them is Mulder, which one of them is Scully, given that one is clearly the believer and one is the skeptic, which in this case, I don't think either one really is the skeptic. But then I think Dean's logic is Sam is the hot redhead of the two, which I just think is adorable and I kind of love as like a brotherly like joking around. The, the uh, Great Escape was another very clear reference. They, they call it out. I don't think I caught the Shining reference. So the Shining reference actually happens when Dean says, I'll work and no play makes Jack a dull boy when they're investigating the office. Yes, referencing the printout of just like the word written over and over and over. Okay, I completely forgot about that. But again, a very fun one. The final reference, at least the one that I caught that's worth bringing up, is a very meta reference because they don't outright reference the medium, but they reference the fact that the uh, female cop in this episode, uh, whose name again was... Diana. Diana, thank you. A terrible name, especially for one-offs. But is played by Linda Blair, who is very famously known for her starring role as a child in The Exorcist. So when Dean says she looks familiar and they kind of play it off as nothing, and then references the pea soup because it was said on set that her faux vomit looked like pea soup. So it's like a very, very meta, like one step removed reference. But, it, but that's it. It's cute. It's fun. It's a nod to the audience. And I think kind of in an episode that wasn't overly dramatic or overly serious compared to the rest of the series, it kind of has a little bit of room for a nod and a nudge here and there without feeling too out of place. I really do think that it talks about the language of the boys. And like you said, like the whole point that you made in story time about how good they are at what they do and how good they are at communicating with one another and like the rhythm that they found as a team. So I, yes, of course, there's like some levity there, but I really do think that there's something really important happening narratively too. And I think that just it's something that we can now collectively as a viewership can hold on to knowing that when they make these references, it's more than just the writers throwing in a joke for the sake of filling a script. It is really 
depicting the brothers the way they relate to situations and to each other in a way that is more than just a throwaway line here and there. Now, just like very quickly, there's a couple more uh, of those pop culture references. Dean actually refers to Casper the Friendly Ghost. He says, you know, like Casper the Bloodthirsty Ghost. So that happens too. And there's also these ones I, I wasn't able to pick up because they're not part of my vocabulary. Like the Rockford Files, which is a 1974 TV series. They're also referencing Mysteries of the Unknown, which is a 1987 book series. Another series called Chips, which is a 19... 77 TV show. Oh yeah, it's a cop show. Yeah, yeah. Oh, see, see, I didn't even know that. So it's just, there's a lot of it. And there's even some people who say that like the name Anthony Giles could have been like a reference to Anthony Head from uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer who plays Giles. So yeah, there's just, there's a lot to read into that. And it just shows like how important previous works truly are to supernatural writers and to the actual story and the narrative that's being told. It's more than just the writers throwing in jokes or throwing in references, it's character building for the brothers themselves almost. Absolutely. So this week, we actually have a TikTok comment, a TikTok series of comments by user Clouds Clouds Cloud. I love, I just, I love that, that username. <laughs> I know, right? Like, I was like, I, oh, I want to use that somewhere. <laughs> Obviously, I won't. I but want, like, I want it's, to know the really story cool. behind that name. <laughs> Right? Okay. Oh my God. Maybe we can ask them. Let me read you the messages. I have a quick question though. From season one, episode three, Dean mentions that he was like the little kid. I forgot his name. In John's journal that was published by Supernatural, it mentions that Dean was mute up until around six or seven, where he finally spoke when he and Dean were playing. So anyways, a headcanon that I have is that Dean wasn't responsive in 1518 because of his selective mutism. And not because he wasn't reciprocating, same as how in 103 and John's journal, it's revealed Dean was mute after his mom left. Both events are really traumatic, so it's not surprising that he wouldn't know what to say. Also, do you think that Dean's selective mutism impacted him throughout the series, but it was just never mentioned? All right, so a little bit of context for you, Drew. 1518 is the one of the last episodes of the series, so I won't tell you exactly what Clouds Clouds Cloud is referring to here, but let's just say that something very important is said to Dean, and he has trouble speaking back. <laughs> to that person who is saying something very important to him. Yeah, your face is just like pretty blank right now. <laughs> but yeah, but just... I'm I, I'm connecting some dots. I have some ideas. Well, so if we remember, I don't know if you'll remember, but like when we first, first started recording, one thing that I said that I would like us to kind of keep track of is when Dean has trouble expressing his feelings. And at the time, like I really, I hadn't, I really wasn't as knowledgeable about the story around the TV show. Uh, for example, here we're mentioning John's journal. I didn't know about all of that. So, but it was still something that I had picked up that when Dean is in very emotionally charged situations, he has trouble speaking and expressing himself. So to see here that somebody kind of put together this idea that, and this, so this is something to keep in mind that Dean basically didn't speak from age four 
to age six or seven, which is a really long time not to be speaking. And so Cloud's Cloud's Cloud is also referring to the episode with Lucas, where Lucas doesn't speak after seeing his dad uh, drown. And Dean connects with him or tries to connect with him immediately, right? Like we had commented on that about how much we loved his connection to Lucas. We had some issues with the select with the, the mutism of Lucas being dealt with by just him speaking, but we really loved the connection between Dean and Lucas. For you to find out that like Dean actually didn't speak for a couple of years after his mom died, like what what does that bring up for you? I mean, to me, it really paints the picture that we do have somebody who we've we've now seen go through very traumatic scenarios, and as you've alluded to later on, will again have some trauma to handle. They are very stoic and silent in response to those moments. And even as a child, after seeing something so terrible, like they're, you know, having his mother killed, his response is basically mutism. We have someone who really doesn't have a language for speaking about their emotions and their issues and shuts down instead, which we've clearly seen even just in our conversations, how he doesn't want to talk about these things. He wants to push it all away and not think about it. Yes, he isn't stopping talking altogether, but he's not talking about the things that we feel he needs to speak about. And also, if we go back to even just this this episode itself, if you're someone who doesn't speak, you end up absorbing a lot more. And if you're left alone all day with the television, that's where your language skills are going to come from, not from conversations, but from absorbing TV. Ooh, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, so definitely, there's definitely some of that. I just, so first of all, I want to thank Clouds, Clouds, Cloud for that wonderful message. It's clearly giving us a lot of food for thought here. This is, this is a theory or like an idea that is kind of new to me, but every time I look at it within the work that we're doing within the podcast, it's more and more appealing to me because it just makes sense. It makes sense for Dean to just shut down whenever he's in an emotionally charged situation. We've seen it in so many episodes already. And the times that we've used like the terms like he shuts it down, he stops the communication, he shuts down, he's not speaking, he can't say anything. It's just like, I don't know, like I feel like I'm having like a a big brain moment where you're like, oh my God, it was this all along. So thank you very much for bringing that up and for allowing us to kind of talk about it because I think that this is really something that we need to track throughout the series well said very well said shall we head on down to the crossroads make some deals let's make some deals would you like to go first this week so i think my crossroads is a little nebulous this week as you know like this this episode is pretty self-contained i mean if things had gone a little differently in this one like there really wouldn't be that much of a difference in the overarching story because i mean they weren't going to kill dean and they couldn't keep uh, Peter alive because he wasn't going to keep their secret. So like there are a few things that really they couldn't have done if they wanted to carry on with the story for another 13 years. I sort of want to challenge this idea, especially in TV, that like things need to be or or things things are often tied up neatly with bows. So Diana's not going to talk. Peter's dead. The spirit is gone. And so all of a sudden it's kind of like the boys were never there. And like, she's going to lie to cover their, well, to cover their butts. And it's like, okay, but like, literally, this was an episode about consequences. And what we're learning is that there are no consequences. That's what I said. Yes. 
<laughs> exactly. That's exactly how you started the episode. And I think that I really want to come back to that. So like, I wonder what would have happened if Peter hadn't died, if Diana hadn't actually killed Peter. I would like to know how Peter would have reacted to all of this happening. Yeah, it's just sort of this loose canon in the story of like, there's this person out there who knows what we do, obviously has to deal with the fact that he can't just be like, oh, it was a ghost and they're ghost hunters and Diana's helping them. Like he's going to look crazy in theory, but it would sort of add this element and we could then bring him back like looking for revenge or, you know, maybe he gets involved with something a little darker. Like there's room to expand, even if they never do. Exactly. There's definitely room to expand there. And if, if that's how you feel, you're not going to be disappointed with some stuff that happens later this season. So that's actually really good news for you. So yeah, I think my deal would be, I would like to know what, ha what would happen if Peter does, didn't die in this episode? Like I'm kind of, I'm kind of over like the bad humans dying at the end of episodes because that's just like, that's not how it happens in real life. You know what I mean? Like bad cops don't die. Bad cops maybe sometimes go on like on suspension, maybe sometimes they get fired and extremely rarely they get trialed and convicted. And so I would have liked to see a little bit more of that happening. Now, what would I give up? Well, I mean, that's hard because there isn't much to give in this episode. I, find. I mean, if I can help you on this one, because I feel like we're picking at straws with this one, you are giving up the boy's safety and zero consequences. So you're kind of giving something up by getting what you want. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Drew. I appreciate that. I appreciate that, uh, that little helping hand. <laughs> yes. Well, I figure I should be lenient with your deal when my deal's a little, um, out there as well. I have two deals that I think are completely equal because one asks for more of A and gets rid of B, and the other one is the exact opposite. This episode, I think, could have been made better and maybe have had more impact on the series had we either A, stuck a little more with the, like, dealing with the police and less of the spirit. Not, like, no supernatural element, but just less and focus more on the how do we deal with the police? How do we deal with lying? How do we deal with the two of us and our, you know, like Sam and Dean's getting through things? Or have Sam escape a lot earlier, have Diana track him down, and then have the two of them together, you know, hey, we hunt ghosts. I don't believe you. Something creepy happens. Let's discuss this. And more of the like, how do we involve someone in a position that is basically a air quote authority figure who now has to look at the world to a whole new lens and have them team up and deal with this thing with some sort of like, oh, if we don't figure this out in time, something's going to happen to Dean scenario like we have now. But just less time with the cops and the investigation and the backstory and more time with the Sam with a new partner going after this thing and letting us grow more either in the way Sam deals with being the leader when Dean's not around, maybe. You know, I fully agree with that. This is, um, this is actually, as I was making my deal, I was like, basically, it's either the focus is on the police or the focus is on the spirit. Like, you can't really have both because they're taking up each other's time, really, is what we're seeing. And so I, I love your deal. 
Yeah, I think now that I've said them both out loud, I think I'd rather have more time of Sam and Diana doing the ghost hunting slash trying to be a cop thing, almost like a mirror to the benders where we had Dean working with a cop and how, you know, through lying and manipulation and eventually coming clean, they were able to work together and we see how that works out to now have Sam doing a similar thing on the other side, where in this case it actually is something supernatural, bringing in someone new as their mentee versus Sam, who's always kind of felt like the mentee to Dean. Well, Drew, my deal is now to take your deal because I really like it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yay, I win a deal. You, you, Of course you win a deal. It's a great deal. So there we go. An episode that, yeah, was a filler, but I don't think was a bad episode per se. But again, with hindsight, I think could have been a better episode. I agree. I mean, it was a filler. It was fun. Let's move on. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. This week, we'd like to thank Clouds Clouds Cloud for her message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. Make sure to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd really love to grow our community. And until next week, carry on our wayward friends. But like, it's the episode where with the girl that you like and the boy that you hated. Oh, uh, where asylum. they're in the asi- asylum. <laughs> when they're in the asylum. I can't believe the episode <laughs> with the asylum where they're in the asylum and they're hunting in an asylum. I think it was called the spooky crazy house. <laughs> oh, I think it was called old hospital. <laughs> <laughs>